Good morning. Well, what we're going to do this morning is to allow for ourselves to gain a little better insight and perspective into a passage of Scripture that we would normally be addressing. And that passage in Galatians chapter 4 pertains to a story of Hagar and her son Ishmael. And as I looked at that passage in Galatians chapter 4, I thought, you know, I think it's going to be very important for us before we address that chapter to get our bearings in the book of Genesis and find out what that story is all about, the historical account of Ishmael, his relationship to his mother, Hagar. And here, as we look at this passage today, we're going to make our way to Genesis chapter 16, where you and I are going to find what I will call the seedbed of the Middle Eastern conflict, past, present, and future. And here, as you're making your way to this 16th chapter, we find ourselves in a situation where Abram's wife, Sarai has not yet provided a child for that family. They're up in years, and it seems as though that promise that God had delivered has become a distant memory. Maybe they're wondering, has it become a distant memory to God? And will he truly follow through on his word? Ever feel that way about God? I want to begin reading in this 16th chapter, verse 1, down through verse 16, to set the stage for us this morning, where Moses, now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant, and perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I, I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring of the desert, and it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. 
The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roi. And it is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old. When Hagar bore Ishmael. So we're going to be looking at this chapter and its connection, chapter 21. We want to understand what's happening in the Middle East, but we also want to understand on a very personal level the deep and rich and yet challenging aspects of following God's will in our lives. Let's look to our Lord together. In prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you. We're coming before you as sinners. We entered this world having inherited that sin from our forefather, Adam. And this sinful nature has been passed on through generations. And there is no denying the reality of sin when we see how this world functions on a daily basis. Yet you have sent Jesus Christ into this world, the sinless one, to die for us, the sinful ones. Christ is our substitute. He died in our place. So we would not have to pay the penalty for our sins. I pray that each and all these services today, as well as the men that have gathered at Lake Lundgren up north this weekend, grasp this and put faith and trust in the ultimate substitute, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. Warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of ours. Because, Father, again, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. What's your favorite Winter Olympic moment? As we're watching the Winter Olympics unfold in front of our very eyes from Sochi, I was thinking about the answer to that question, my own personal experience, and my mind went back to an event that took place in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, where by all accounts it was assumed that the Soviet Union 
would simply run away with the goad when it came to the whole matter of the hockey tournament. In fact, a writer for the New York Times put it this way, unless the ice melts or unless the United States team or another team performs a miracle, as did the American squad in 1960, the Russians are expected to easily win the Olympic gold medal for the sixth time in the last seven tournaments. I thought about this as I watched one of those members of the Russian hockey team take the torch and carry it on in the Friday night welcoming ceremony. But back to that event in 1980. Before the game, Herb Brooks, who was the head coach for the U.S. Olympic team, read his players a statement that had been written on a piece of paper telling them that, quote, You were born to be a player. You were meant to be here. The moment is yours. The game began to unfold, and I remember I was sitting forward. I couldn't couldn't take my eyes off of what was occurring. I was raised on hockey night in Canada, you see. And every weekend, we would, as an extended family with seven uncles of mine, we'd gather together and watch the, the hockey games. And then I'd strap on my skates after school would let out on a Monday and carry on through the winter. During the third period, all of a sudden, the United States tied, tied the game up and then went ahead. And as the U.S. team tried to clear the puck, now reading from a sports writer, moved the puck across the blue line, which they did with seven seconds remaining, the crowd began to count down the seconds left. The sportscaster was Al Michaels, the great football announcer who teams up with Chris Collinsworth. He was calling the game along with Ken Dryden. And all of a sudden, now we hear the entire chant as now the countdown is beginning to take place. America has a one-goal lead. Pick up on the countdown in this broadcast. And then Michaels delivers this incredibly famous line that is still recalled today. Eleven seconds. You've got ten seconds. The countdown is going on right now. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? And as the buzzer sounds, he shouts, Yes! One of the great calls in sports history. Sarai's got a countdown happening. There's a sense of urgency in her heart, in her mind, in her soul. She and her husband have left Ur of the Chaldees for the land of Canaan, based on nothing more and nothing less than the promise of God. 
And God has promised them a land, and God has promised them descendants. But in the naturalistic worldview, she's beyond childbearing years. But what God delights to do is to put his people in supposed impossible situations. So that when he delivers, there is no other option but to give glory to God, not to ourselves. And God alone. And in the eyes of the world, this geriatric couple are at a point in time where having a child is impossible, and so their naturalistic perspective has got to be put in context where here we have this supernatural God who has made a statement, your descendants will be numerous and be a blessing to the nations. How do you reconcile God's word with your life situation? That's the issue that we're going to be wrestling with today. Because what I want to do now is to look at this passage and tie it together with what we will cover next week. And as we do so, we're going to draw out some promise keepers once again. Because in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul emphasizes the promise of God from Genesis, where God promised of Eve and Adam that there would be this one, as he speaks to that serpent, who would crush the head of that serpent that you and I know as Jesus. As we track the promise through the generations, I want to draw now the first promise keeper, and I'm going to phrase it like this. The number one, when our faith in God's promise is weak, we seek to do God's will our way according to our time. Sarai feels the second. She hears the countdown, so to speak. She's wondering if the buzzer is going to go off and she is going to be without child. And here you've got now an empty promise on your heads from a God that she thought was all faithful. How do you reconcile your naturalistic assumptions with the supernatural God? Let's dig in. In verse 1 of this 16th chapter, you and I are already presented with a dilemma. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15, three distinctive promises have been delivered to Abram that he is going to have descendants from him, and they will be a great nation. But now it seems as though Sarai's womb has been closed. Where's God in all this? So now, the complication here of the seed is going to resemble the complication of the land in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. In chapter 12, after God had promised Abram the land of Canaan, the promised land, Immediately, Abram's faith will be tested. Now again, a faith which can't be tested can't be trusted. 
Abram flunks the test and flees to Egypt. Even though the land seemed barren in the eyes of Abram, it was fruitful in the eyes of God. Keep that thought in mind. Because likewise for Abram and Sarah, even though her womb may seem to be barren, it is fruitful in the eyes of God. A faith which can't be tested, can't be trusted. God had personally, singularly promised them descendants. Will he be faithful to his word? What is interesting is that when they fled that land, it seemed to be lacking that seemed to be unfruitful, they ran off to Egypt. Where in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 16, we're informed that Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. Latch on to that word maid servants, which he had obtained from Egypt. And look at what unfolds now in front of our very eyes. In chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maid servant. Beware of failing temptations in the past, where the failures now reappear in the present. She had an Egyptian maid servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Do you feel the tension here? She's already shifting blame upon God. Now, notice here, this is is Sarai's maidservant. This is not Abram's maidservant. Abram had a male servant. His name was Eleazar. Abram sought to find out if this was the plan of producing descendants by simply making Eleazar his manservant, his heir, and God had said no to Abram. But now Sarai has an alternative plan for God. And so she's saying, then let's utilize Hagar, whom we've obtained from Egypt, even though they had flunked the test and gone to Egypt because they thought that the land of Canaan was barren. She now looks at her womb and thinks, my womb is barren. Therefore, we'll use the Egyptian alternative to bring this child into this world as she seeks to do God's will her way according to her time. She was about 65 years old when Abram and his father had left the homeland. Ten years have now gone by. Time is marching on. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Notice she says, perhaps I can build a family through her. As if she's making herself to be the source and Hagar the means rather than viewing God as being the source and Sarai being the means. She has come up with an alternative plan and placed herself and 
instead of God, and Hagar instead of Sarai, and now we have a substitution plan emerging in front of our very eyes, which I see happening in the world today as well, where people attempt to substitute for God's will. Perhaps I can build a family, she says, through her. And Abram, bless his heart, agreed to what Sarai said. But what's interesting is that there is a parallel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, where Adam agreed to what Eve had said. And so now we are told, furthermore, that after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai, his wife, underlined this word, took. Took her Egyptian. Don't underestimate, it's an Egyptian maidservant. Moses wants us to grasp the phrasing. Took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave, underline that word, her to her husband. You see the words took and gave? These are the very same words. These were the progression of verbs that were used in the fall in Genesis 3, verse 6, where Eve took of the fruit and gave to Adam. And now here is Sarai who takes of Hagar and gives to Abram. And now we've got a counterfeit plan beginning to unfold in front of our very eyes. This was culturally acceptable at that time period. Made servants as a means to carry on progeny. But though it was culturally acceptable, it was morally impermissible. Never assume that what is culturally acceptable is morally permissible. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. The Hebrew word here for despise, kel, is the Hebrew word that is translated curses in Genesis 12, verse 3, where God had said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse So it's as if now what we find is that Hagar of Egypt is now cursing the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, leading to Jesus. Well, now. Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong. Like Eve, Sarah now shifts the blame. And like Adam, Abram shrugs off the responsibility. And so Sarai now, you can almost see her pointing her 
finger. I am suffering. I'm hurting. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. The word despises here is an interesting one because it is used again in chapter 16 a little further. And it describes the relationship that Egypt has towards Israel in the future. She goes on. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now she brings God into the equation after all this. It's kind of like she has set the course. She has planned the way. She has come up with an alternative strategy. We want God's will. He's promised us a descendant, but we're here to help out God. You ever try to help out God? Remember the phrase that some people use? God helps those who help themselves. It's not found in the Bible. But here now we find that Abram responds, Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Now Sarah becomes the victimizer. And Sarai then mistreated, mistreated this young lady. The same word was used in chapter 15, verse 13, for the mistreatment that the Egyptians cast against the Israelites. And so here is an Israelite mistreating the Egyptian. But in the days of Moses, it will come full circle, and the Egyptians will mistreat the Israelites that come from Abram, Isaac, you see. Jacob, and onward. You see what's unfolding here? Pick it up in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her near a spring. The title angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is used to describe the second member of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The second member of the Trinity now arrives on the scene. Along the road to Shur, and, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, he knows her name. This is highly unusual in Middle Eastern history, in its literature. She's an outcast, and yet the second member of the Trinity knows her name. He knows your name. And he knows the name of those you're burdened for this morning. Hagar. Hagar. But then reminds her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He keeps the tension before her. He understands what's going on. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And takes us back to the Garden of Eden where God himself calls out, Where are you? knows, but he's drawing out the one who's in desperate need. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Pause there. 
Do you realize that he does not say, I understand, keep running away from her? The natural tendency when we think that God is on our side is to help us keep our distance from the one who seems to have mistreated us. But part of God's plan of protection is God offering this sense of direction. Do not run from. Rather, it's time for you to return to. Who are you running from this morning? You have any tattered relationships where God is saying, part of my plan of protection is to offer you a sense of direction? Go back and resolve that issue. The angel of the Lord added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And imagine now, this is the very thing that Sarai was longing to hear. But she had come up with a substitute plan. Islam comes up with a substitute plan. The world comes up with substitutes for God and substitutes for the second member of the Trinity in particular. But now God is saying here that he himself is going to increase her descendants, that they will be too numerous to count. Sounds like a promise had been delivered to Abram, which, by the way, Sarai had not been privy to hear. Here is Hagar, not Sarai, hearing a promise of this nature. Interesting. And then he adds this in verse 11. You are now with child. You will have a son. And you shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears. And now as she will return to Abram, she is going to hear every time her son's name is mentioned, God hears. She is going to provide an evangelistic witness in the ears of Sarai. Sarai God hears. God never heard from you, Sarai. You didn't cry out for God as the seconds were ticking. Do you believe in miracles? He'll be a wild donkey of a man. There is something uncontrolled about this one named Ishmael. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he'll live in hostility toward all his brothers. And now you're seeing the unfolding of the Middle East. Do you realize, do you realize, Ishmael, his descendants, he had 12 tribes. Sound familiar? Ishmael's daughter married Esau. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau had 12 tribes. Do you see the substitution plan unfolding in front of our very eyes and the tensions throughout history in the Middle East? And the dangers of substitution plans for God's will. When we attempt to do God's will our way according to our time. 
We produce conflict. A conflict which is unavoidable. And consequences which are likewise unavoidable. And now she's going to bring this one known as God His back into the presence of the one who never who never called out so that God could hear. Which tends to be the case when people come up with alternative strategies. There was silence from the lips of Sarai. But there was a cry of despair from the heart of Hagar. And interestingly, God heard Hagar, but he has yet to hear from Sarai. Does God hear from you? She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. And now she's got this multi-sensory approach to her relationship to the second member of the Trinity. And she's not even part of the line of Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. But she's crying out to the second member of the Trinity when she says, you are the God who sees me. She is calling the second member of the Trinity the angel of the Lord God. Astounding. I have now seen the one who sees me, and that is why the well was called Biroi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar, Hagar bore Abram a son. Now, obviously, Abram has been informed as she has returned of what has taken place in the desert because Abram was not there to hear what the name of the son should be. But Abram now gets the word with regarding the name of the son from Hagar. Not even directly from God. She got it from God. Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born, and Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him, Ishmael. When our faith in God's promise is weak, we seek to do God's will our way according to our time. Flip over to chapter 21, because now we've got the rest of the story. This is the story that Paul will argue from in Galatians 4. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had what? Promised. Here comes your next promise keeper. Number two. When our faith in God's promise is strong, we trust God to do His will, His way, in His time. Look what it says next. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Paul would write in Galatians chapter 4. And now what God strategically does is that he allows for his people to be placed in supposedly impossible situations so that when he intervenes, there is no other option but to give glory to God and God alone. And that is why you will typically find barrenness in successive generations so that they would realize, they would realize this is of God. This is a nat- not a naturalistic approach, but a supernatural plan unfolding so that they're well prepared for the death resurrection of the one we know as Jesus, Jesus Christ. The word gracious here in the Hebrew means literally visited. It connotes the idea of a direct intervention of God. And so now you and I are informed that Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him Abraham gave the name Isaac, which means laughter. He laughs. He gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. But don't you remember Don't you remember that those false teachers in the time period that Paul was writing in the book of Galatians were arguing? Were arguing that it's grace plus circumcision? They wanted to add works to grace? But the reader of Genesis recognizes that God also had circumcised Ishmael. You Judaizers, do you realize that Abram had circumcised Ishmael as well as Isaac? Because in Genesis chapter 17, in verse 23, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household are brought with his, bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them. You Judaizers... Your argument is self-contradictory. What's interesting when I read the Quran is that in Islam, Muslims substitute Ishmael for Isaac. And in the Quran, Muslims substitute Esau for Jacob. Throughout history, what we have is a counterfeit substitution line, generation by generation by generation. And Hagar and Sarai will be represented in Galatians 4 as representing two separate opposite lines. And this world today is trying to sort out what's real and what's counterfeit. And now here are the scriptures that are laying out before us the genesis 
so to speak, the seedbed of all the issues of the world globally as well as personally today. And so now, here it is. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. She's laughing. You and I know that expression, he who laughs last laughs best. The my take is he who laughs last thinks slowest. Sarah said, God has brought me to laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. This is, this is the laughter of the redeemed. But don't lose sight of that word, laugh. It's going to reappear in Hebrew in a whole different way in just a second. Why, there's joy now, as Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Hey, Sarah, you're old too. She's got a way of overlooking things. They're about 13 years apart. Now remember, the Quran it emphasizes Ishmael over Isaac. In the Bible, it emphasizes Isaac over Ishmael. In the Quran, it emphasizes Esau over Jacob. In the Bible, it's Jacob over Esau. Pick it up now. Pick it up now in verse 13, rather verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. You see that there? But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, can't escape that phrase. Remember how he had flunked his test because the land seemed to be barren, so he headed off to Egypt where he bought Hagar? And now his past is finding out his present. She said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. She had seen that this son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born was mocking. You see that word at the end of verse at the end of verse nine here? It comes from the same Hebrew word as the word laughter. But it's a laughter of cynicism. It's the laughter of the counterfeit. It's the laughter of sarcasm against the legitimate line that leads toward the Redeemer, Jesus. It's not the laughter of the redeemed. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, but God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. We did the first time. But this time God's telling him to listen. 
Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And that word reckoned comes with the same idea where Abram was reckoned righteous by God when he believed in the promise of that offspring seed in Genesis chapter 15, which leads toward that ultimate offspring, Jesus. He will make the son of the maidservant into a nation, you and I are told regarding God, also because he is your offspring. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food, skin of water, gave him to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders, then sent her off the boy. She went on her way, wandered in the desert of Beersheba, nomadic. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She went off, sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. She thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she, she sat there nearby, and she began to sob. And now her faith is breaking down, because didn't God promise descendants, plural? But interestingly, though she's not of the elect line, but the non-elect, it's not going to be through Ishmael, but rather through Isaac. It's not going to be through Esau, but rather through Jacob. Nonetheless, God hears her cry. The angel of God calls, there's your second member of the Trinity, to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? says her name. He doesn't forget the name of the one hurting. Then that classic statement of the scriptures. Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand. I will make him to a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water. Gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, Ishmael, as he grew up. Not only have I seen in pastoral ministry Jews come to saving faith in Christ, I've also seen Arabs come to faith in Jesus Christ, Egyptians, Lebanese, People from Syria have been sprinkled throughout congregations through the years. I've seen God at work. But God had an elect line to bring Messiah into the world of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. God was with her as he grew up. He lived in the desert, became an archer, and while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from where? Egypt. And now you've come full circle. Eventually, Ishmael will have a daughter who will marry Esau, 12 tribes from them. Through the generations, we get to the point where ultimately 
there will be a king in the time frame in which Christ was born, whose name was Herod, who was of the line of Esau, who would have a substitute plan as to who should be king, and tried to put the babies to death who were found in Bethlehem so that he could reign. But God is sovereign. Herod is not. Jesus would eventually die according to the will of the Father, not the will of Herod. On the third day be raised from the dead. And now what we see here, pulling these two chapters together, which Paul will allude to, we'll see next week, are two different opposite approaches that humanity has opted for. The question is, which one is ours? When our faith in God's promise is weak, we seek to do God's will our way according to our time. But when our faith in God's promise is strong, we trust God to do His will, His way, in His time. It's that great Olympic moment. And now the crowd is shouting it out in unison. Eleven. Ten. El Michaels breaks in. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! And Sarah believes. Do you? Let's stand together. And now in miniature form, we see the unfolding drama of all of history. Globally. And yet at the same time, that personal dilemma that each of us have to address and face. The tendency is to run from promise. To run to Egypt. Looking for alternative security. The willingness to be able to embrace an alternative plan and focus upon a Hagar. When we sense that the clock is ticking and want our way rather than yours, our time rather than yours. So now speak to our hearts, and if there's anyone here that is struggling with your will and the consistency of embracing your way, and wanting things according to your time. Minister now to that heart. And may they find their faith strengthened, Father, because we are rooting our teachings in your word and drawing our attention to your Son. And for this we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.